Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, we've been kind of addressing the theme of grace. I think you figured that out already. Uh, we've seen that grace illustrated, as Alan mentioned, in the baptisms. There's nothing more heartwarming than to see some children embracing the Savior and an adult embracing the Savior uh, and declaring that faith publicly. Uh, Tom's statements about your giving and what that has meant to the church as far as finishing out this particular uh, year. Uh, the gentlemen who have signed on to be our Seasons of Life pastors, at least two of them, you know, time would not allow for us to tell you uh, the great extent to which the grace of God has been manifested and each one of those uh, men's lives and coming to us. You know, we looked and looked and looked, and I looked even more for a senior's season of life pastor, and pretty much around December just said they don't exist, at least not the kind of person that we want. And um, one day I was having lunch with Dennis Rainey, and Dennis said to me, said, hey, there's a guy that is uh, coming in to look at our ministry, and just in talking to him, I thought you might like to just meet him because he's real high on the church. In fact, he's been working for the church. and So I said, sure. So I had lunch with Phil and Marge and we talked about the church even though they were interviewing for the family ministry. And uh, about a week later, he called me back and said, I'm interested in the church, not the family ministry. And uh, Dennis, being gracious like he was, said, great, that's fine. That's where God is calling him. But it just shocked me that suddenly, out of the blue, about the time the whole body had finally understood uh, the direction in which we were headed and had affirmed that, that God began to release His grace to us. And then Rich then followed, and now this week we've got a very interested young married pastor candidate coming in. To me, all of that it has not been in any way done by our strength. But what we see in all that is just simply... The grace of God. God is alive. God wants to be gracious to all of us. And even more importantly, in time, He wants to move that grace not only to us, but then channel it through us so that we can be gracious to other people. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at a situation in the city of Corinth, in the church of Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So you might turn there. In a sense, I, I almost want to say this is coincidence as well, looking in chapter 8, but I even think the message this morning is kind of sovereignly and providentially arranged by the grace of God for us. You know, we're beginning a new decade. And the fact of the matter is, this is the first message given at Fellowship Bible Church in this new decade of the 90s. And I have the privilege of being able to do that. And this chapter, appropriately, I think, for this new decade, focuses on the needs, not of us, but of others. Not of, not of kind of re-emphasizing our independence, but talking about us in a way that would be helpful in seeing our interdependence. And certainly we need to see that. On voluntarily giving away things, rather than taking things. And I think that's important. I think that's providential. Uh, 
That, by the way, is quite a contrast, if you think about it, to the decade that we've just left behind, the 1980s, where the focus, for the most part, has really been on the maximization of me and myself and I, where my rights took precedent for 10 years over what was right, where the goal was having everything, ASAP, right? That's the 1980s. Nowhere really is that credo better expressed than in the movie Wall Street. Maybe some of you saw that. I didn't, but I read an excerpt out of that where Michael Douglas, who's playing this great power broker, in a sense gives the creed of the 80s when in front of a group of his comrades, he gives this proclamation. He tells them, and I quote, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed clarifies. Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed, mark my word, will save the USA. Now the movie makers oftentimes help us to see ourselves. Certainly that statement in many ways helps us see this decade of the 80s. But you mark my word, if we have another 10 years living by that kind of creed, we will be in serious jeopardy as a nation. The main debt that the 80s, uh, the 90s must address is not the massive federal deficit that we have incurred as we continually spend, spend, spend with money we don't have, have, have. The 80s and the 90s must address the massive deficit of self-indulgence that we have enjoyed as our right, but which, ha which has left us impoverished, not enriched. Which has left us empty, not fulfilled. We know that. Greed will not save. But there's another G word that will. And that's what we're looking at this morning, and that word is grace. Notice in our passage, we're going to be looking at the first nine verses, that that really is the essence of this passage. It's grace. It's found in verse 1. Look there. He talks about the grace of God, which was given in the churches of Macedonia. In verse 6, he implores these Corinthians, and we'll talk about this in a moment, to finish this gracious work. Actually, it just means finish the grace. In verse 7, it says the same thing, that you should abound in this grace. And then in verse 9, as he speaks to Jesus Christ, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord. This passage is saturated with grace. Not an abstract kind of grace, as we'll see in a moment, but a very tangible and very practical kind of grace. What does grace mean? When you think of the word grace, does anything come immediately to your mind? A lot of us have used the simple acronym that uses the letters found in the word grace to say that it means God riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Well, that's a good definition. The early Greeks had a different definition for the word grace uh, in their vocabulary. To them, grace was to do some act of beauty. That was their definition. When they thought of grace, they thought of some virtuous 
and high and lofty act that a man or woman would perform that would be beautiful to them. It was a word that personified the best of life, that which was attractive over as opposed to those actions that were ugly, so to speak, that which was glorious rather than shameful, compassionate rather than harsh, compelling to a person that would draw you to a person rather than that which was repelling in a person. It was a word that the church found handy when they began to write the words of the New Testament to describe God's acts of beauty towards us. Remember what Paul said in Second Ephesians chapter 2? He said, for by grace you've been saved. We might translate this way. For by an act of beauty you have been saved. That's what grace is. It's doing something that is compelling, that makes you excited about seeing this thing that doesn't normally occur in a world that's led by greed rather than grace. You know, as Christians, we have been given the grace of God. But this passage is talking more about what we've been given. We've been given it so that we can give it away. Paul tells us, he says, grow in grace. Peter tells us the same thing, that we're to grow in grace. Paul starts many of his letters with grace to you, you Christians. Jesus Christ says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. And as they use those words, they're not talking about some abstract theological calling, but they're talking about a very real, tangible, practical, down-to-earth lifestyle that's peppered all the way through with acts of beauty, of compassion, of love, of generosity, of sacrifice. That's what he means when he says, grace to you. God wants to give grace to us so that we're able to do something to someone else or to someone else's that we normally would not be able to do. But once we do it, people would say, boy, that is so gracious. It's an act of grace. In this chapter, 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is asking these Corinthians to make real the grace of God that they have experienced from Jesus Christ. So let's look at it, first of all, starting in verse 1. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which was given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, in a little while later, we're going to see that what the grace of God means is money. <laughs> but he doesn't say money. He just says the grace of God which was given in the churches of Macedonia. Now, in saying that, probably some of you are... Uh, a little bit mystified because there's a background to this verse that you need to know. First of all, let's just start with the issue of who the Macedonian churches were. If you've got a Bible, let me, uh, I mean, uh, just a Bible, but you've got a Bible that has maps in it, you might turn back to uh, your maps. The one that outlines some of Paul's missionary journeys probably would be the best in the back. We'll have a little geography lesson here. But we're going to look at just the region of Macedonia for a moment. 
good to hear all those Bibles turning, by the way. Now, if you look, just to help you, if you look to what is known as modern-day Greece, uh, look up above modern-day Greece, and you'll see this region called Macedonia. And as you look into this region, you're going to see a number of cities. And if it's drawing Paul's missionary journeys, you'll see his missionary journeys passing through a few of those cities. Principally, the city of Philippi, the city of Thessalonica, and the city of Berea. It was in those three cities that Paul was able to found and to establish a local church. And so in verse 1 of our chapter, when Paul says, I want to make known to you the grace that was given in the churches of Macedonia, he is speaking of these three churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. Two of those churches have become letters of our New Testament, by the way, as Paul writes those letters to those particular areas. Now, if you'll know, right before that region, Macedonia, if you go right below it, you see Achaia, and that's the province in which the city of Corinth is to be found. So they were within close proximity of one another. So when the Apostle Paul says, I want to make known to you something about the Macedonian churches, there were things that the Corinthians already knew about the Macedonians because they didn't live far from them. Now you can turn back to 2 Corinthians 8. Let me tell you what some of those things that they would have known already about the Macedonians, which maybe you don't know. Three things. First of all, they would know that the region just north of them was a very poor region. Now that wasn't true of Achaia, in which Corinth lived, but it was true of Macedonia. It wasn't a very prosperous area. And that's because the Roman government had taxed this, this region excessively. They had raped this region, if you will, of many of its natural resources. It was very well known to have precious metals, much forest and timber. And the Roman Empire, in need of those things, had taken much of those things away from the people and had not allowed those people to enjoy the benefits of those natural resources themselves, much like Mother Russia did to many of her satellite countries. So as a result, this region was fairly well oppressed economically. The people had been exploited, so they were poor. second thing the Corinthians would know is that this was a war-torn region because of that kind of domination, there had been a lot of civil strife and even civil wars and the Roman legions had had to march into there and oftentimes put down these revolts. And therefore, Macedonia probably looked to the Corinthians living in peace and prosperity much like the Romanians looked to the West Germans or the English. Third thing that they would know about these churches were that these churches had suffered much persecution. Paul had experienced that. You only have to read the book of Acts to find that out. Paul was put in prison when he tried to start the church in Philippi. He was run out of town on a rail at Thessalonica and even Berea. I mean, he had not received a very warm welcome there. And after he left, these churches experienced a great deal of persecution. Many people lost their jobs because of embracing Christ. They suffered even further economically as well as socially. 
So that's kind of the, the situation that was taking place in these Macedonian churches. And the Corinthians knew about that. But as we read in verse 1, there's something that they didn't know, and Paul wants to tell the Corinthians something more about these Macedonian churches. Let's see what he says to them, starting in verse 2. He says, We want you to know that in, great, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Now let's stop right there, and you might just circle the word saints, because that's got some background to it as well. We know from other places in the New Testament that the saints that Paul is mentioning here just in passing in this letter are those saints who were in Jerusalem. The mother church in Jerusalem. And the Christians who made up that church. The reason he mentions them is because there had been a great famine. A great famine, in, in fact, was still going on in Palestine. And not only that, but this church, after the apostles left, had undergone a, undergone a great deal of persecution. Much more so than anywhere else. As a matter of fact, just keep your place there, and you might turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Though this remark is being made long after these events, it gives us a little insight about what that persecution was all about. But you can imagine when these people, these Jews had embraced Christ, not only did they look foreign to the Romans, but they looked foreign to their own people and their own families. And many of them had been dispossessed by their own family, sons and daughters, husband and wives, because they had taken on Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the Jews felt like that was heresy. And as a result, that church had undergone a lot of persecution. And as the writer of Hebrews reflects back on these times, years later, in, in chapter 10, look at verse 32. He says, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, because some of them were in prison for their faith. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Now when we turn back to Corinthians, we're turning back in time to these days and that's what was going on. And though they accepted a much better possession in having had to give up their property to embrace Christ, it still left them in a very desperate situation. And these Jerusalem saints, this mother church, was in dire need here. And that need had first become known to Corinth. And then later it had become known to these churches in Macedonia. Now we know that from chapter 9, and we won't look at that, but... In chapter 9, we know that the news of this famine and this need first came to the Corinthian church, and then later it was shared by Paul to the Macedonian churches. Now, when the Corinthian church heard of this need, they responded immediately. 
And what they did is they pledged themselves to give an amount of money to help this poor church in its dire circumstances. Now, just remember, because we're going to come back to this, the word pledge. Because that's at the heart of the text that we're looking at this morning. They pledged to give this amount of money. See, the Corinthians were in the midst of plenty and prosperity. In fact, Paul mentions their abundance. Look at verse 14 of that chapter. He says, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want. See, they were in abundance. And so it was really only right that they share some of this material abundance with the mother church of Christianity, which at one point in time, even above their ethnic prejudice, had been willing to share their spiritual riches with the rest of the world. So the church said, yeah, let's do something. Let's, let's give. Let's help out. Let's respond the way they responded to us. Now, when Paul heard of that pledge, he rejoiced. And as he was on his second missionary journey, traveling through these churches in Macedonia, he shared this tremendous response with the Macedonian churches. Now, here's what I want you to clearly understand. He shared that response with the Macedonian churches not because he wanted to manipulate the Macedonian churches to give. He just wanted to encourage them at how the power of God changes lives. But because he could see of their dire need, it's very clear from this text and what you're going to read here and what you've already read, that he didn't ask them to give because they had so little. And he didn't want to take away from them in their poverty. But he looked to those churches who were in plenty in order to provide that. So he had no intention of challenging them to give. In fact, if you look at verse 2, it uses the word deep poverty. This was no ordinary poverty. This is a deep poverty. This word translated in other places in the New Testament is translated beggar. Boy, that gives us a little deeper insight, doesn't it? It's the Greek word bathos, from which we get the word bathosphere, those Instruments, you know, that go deep down into the ocean. Deep poverty is what he's trying to express about these people. And though they were, in a sense, beggars themselves, persecuted and poor, upon hearing of the plight of the Jerusalem saints, they begged, but with a different kind of begging. They begged with the grace of God. Look at verse 4 again. They begged us, not for something. Oh, the Corinthians are going to give something? Well, they need to give something to us. No, they didn't beg that way. You know how they begged? Even out of their poverty? They begged with much entreaty for the favor of participating in the support of these saints who were even less fortunate than them. Wow. Now that's a picture of grace, isn't it? That's the spirit that we need in the 90s, isn't it? That's what you're seeing here. The, the picture that is painted of this, these saints entreating is here's the Apostle Paul. I want you to get this picture. Here's the Apostle Paul telling them about what the Corinthians are going to do. 
and kind of like a little kid on hearing his dad's going to go fishing, you know, for, for uh, deep sea fishing, starts grabbing his dad's arm and saying, I want to go, I want to go, please, please, please. And the dad knowing, hey, there's no way he can go out and fish in the deep sea for marlin. He's just not incapable. That's too hard. It's too much. And yet the child keeps going, please let me do it. Please let me do it. And finally, he relinquishes. That's the picture you get of these Macedonians and the grace that's being made real in them. Paul says, hey, the Corinthians are going to really help out the saints, and they get involved, and he's, you almost get the picture of him backing off and saying, you don't have anything to give. And they're going, please, please. Boy, this is surely a miracle in church history. When has there ever been a place in which the body begged the pastor to take an offering? I mean, is this not incredible? Talk about a thousand points of light, and here's one of them. This is one point of light in church history where the saints did something that gave a track record of saying, this is not natural. This is supernatural. This is not us just gobbling up the grace of God for our own good. What it can do for me. Keep forgiving me, Lord. Keep giving me. Keep blessing me, Lord. No, this is the grace of God being channeled through these people to someone else. They're stepping up to a high level of maturity here. You know, if I could illustrate this, it would be like a missionary watching and seeing a group of Romanians in downtown Bucharest take an offering to send to the victims of Hurricane Hugo. That's how it would feel. And you're saying, no, you don't need to give. And they're going, but we want to give. Please let us give. This is an amazing thing here. I'm kind of awed by it. Somewhat convicted by it, too. To see this kind of giving on their part. You know, as I mentioned, if you look in verse 1, he doesn't call it money, though. He calls it the grace of God. And I think the reason he does that is because certainly they sent a gift to Jerusalem and it was real money because grace can't be grace unless it's real and tangible and touchable. You know, we speak as an abstract principle. Grace is never an abstract principle. It's real. But that's only part of the reality here. I think the reason Paul says that they gave the grace of God is because they also gave something else. You see, the grace of God was only one part of the miracle. The greater miracle was that these Macedonians, even in the midst of their poverty, had chosen to believe that there was something more in life than just living for myself. Something more in life than just being comfortable and just getting and just looking out for me. No, they had chosen what Jesus called the narrow way. That they had come to a place by faith, that's the only way you can come there, to believe that giving is really the way to an abundant life. They had really believed that and embraced that. And as they did that, they gave themselves more completely and radically to the Lord Jesus Himself. So when they gave some money 
Or if Paul were to say in verse 1, they gave some money, that would have been an understatement because that would have only been part of it. See, they gave much more. They gave themselves to the grace of God which was stirring them up, to the promptings of the Holy Spirit which was moving on their lives, even in the midst of their poverty, to do something beyond, and that's what I want you to see, beyond their ability. Look at that. In these verses here, verse 3, you might even underline them, beyond their ability. When was the last time you did something beyond your ability? Something that, that you knew you were going much further than what you would normally do because of the grace of God working in you. Something that stretched you out Something that you had no expectation of receiving something back. You were just going to go the extra distance because you enjoyed responding to the God who is in you. That's all. That was your joy in life. That's true of these people here. They did that. And it resulted in them giving up money. Notice the amazing equation in verse 2. You can just look at verse 2 and let me give you the equation as I see it. Here's what it is. Affliction may be marked by joy, but affliction plus deep poverty equals aggressive generosity. Now that's an equation that just simply does not compute logically. And certainly doesn't compute in a society where greed is good, where statistics reveal that people under 40, and this is a statistic that they just took recently, of people under 40 in the United States, that they give less than 2% to any charitable causes. 2% were the most affluent we've ever been, we're giving the least as a country to charitable causes than we have ever given in our history, and pitifully so. See, that just doesn't equate. So how could they do this? The secret's found in verse 5. It's simply stated, but succinctly stated. It says, they first gave themselves to the Lord. Are you religious but unsatisfied? Do you feel like God has been gracious to you, but somehow it just doesn't feel enough? You know, for so many Christians, I think it's because as they hurtled down through time, they came to this place where they had received the grace of God, but they had never come to a place where they yielded themselves to Christ in order to be a channel of the grace of God. And so they become a dead sea. Taking in, not letting go. That's the place of dryness, Christian life. Now remember I told you, you know, that the Corinthians had pledged, because had made a pledge about giving to the Jerusalem saints. See, there's a reason why Paul is telling the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches, what they gave up sacrificially. It's because he's using them as an illustration to this pledge that the Corinthians had taken just about a year ago. If you jump down to verse 10, he mentions that it's been a year since they've taken this pledge. But now it's a year later. And you know what? 
Nothing has happened. They got so excited about pledging their money. They said, we're going to help them out. And boy, they felt generous when they did it. They had an experience. And oh, the Corinthians, as you know, they loved experience. They loved to speak in tongues and to have miracles and prophecies and their services and all those kind of things. And when they pledged that gift, I'm sure everybody shouted amen and all that. But now, the grace of God had gone from just a pledge to being cut short because they hadn't followed through. Look at verses 6 through 8. Consequently, Paul says, we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this grace. In other words, Titus is coming and he wants to see you fulfill what you've done. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this grace. I am not speaking this as a command, but as you proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Let me ask two questions just to help us look in this passage. First of all, the question, was it wrong for the Corinthians to have made a pledge? <laughs> the reason I ask that because we've made some pledges here recently. Well, as he goes through this passage, nowhere do you get the, the sense and nowhere else in the New Testament that making a pledge to do something on the future is wrong. In fact, in these verses, especially in verses 6 and 7, Paul doesn't say that it was wrong what they did. He doesn't condemn them for what they have done in making this pledge, all he's doing is urging them now to put their money, <laughs> you know, where their mouth was. That's what he's doing. Well, I'm so glad to say you've done that. So good to stand up here and look at you all and say, you did that. You know, Paul, uh, uh, rather Tom, talked about the beginning here about how we've met our budget and all those kind of things. I mean, those are real things. People, I know we don't like to talk a lot about money, those are, but those are real things. But it's because of the grace. The joy of announcing that was not nearly as good as the changes that took place in order to get that. You know, some of us got together and as we talked, we all made pledges, didn't we? For the next three years, we had a part of a pledge for this month, just for this month. And as we collected those, the total, as we announced to you all, was $242,000. That's what we said we were going to give in the month of December. We gave $257,000 in the month of December. That's grace. And for those of us, even in mentioning that, you know who were part of that? That feels good, doesn't it? feels good to know you gave up something for something that's going to get even better for others. Not for us. But life isn't for us. The way of Christ isn't just for us. The way of Christ is to do something for others. That's where the real abundant life is. That's where the maturity is. And the Thessalonians had stepped up, and the Philippians and the Bereans, to a different level of Christianity. But not these Corinthians. That's why we have to ask the second question. Why hadn't the Corinthians followed through on this pledge? That's especially relevant in light of verse 7 because Paul says, you know, they had everything. 
And they were rich in faith and knowledge and all those kind of things. When he says utterance, he's talking about the Word. They were rich in the Word. You know what I think? I think he's talking tongue-in-cheek here. I think the reality is, is he's quoting them. He's using their own words back. Because you know what? We know the Corinthians boasted about how spiritual they were. So Paul's saying, you said this yourself, that you're rich in faith and you're rich in the Word and you're rich in knowledge and you're rich in love and all those kind of things. Because he's leading them to ask a hard, penetrating, real question. If so, why aren't you rich in giving? Boy, that cuts through like a knife, doesn't it? Why in all this spiritual abundance is there not financial follow-through? You know, the, the answer, I think, can only be that these Corinthians had badly misjudged their maturity level. That has plagued, by the way, every Christian generation. You know, the Corinthians had assumed something that so many do. That having faith means that you're faithful. That having knowledge automatically means that you're applying that knowledge. That because you feel love, that you do acts of love. Because you think about and acknowledge the importance of purity, that you're pure. That because you've made a pledge, that you're going to give. See, we get caught, caught up in that. And we can assume because we feel those things, we must be pretty mature. Paul's saying, no. Not unless there's follow-through. You're not mature. You see, you can so easily deceive yourselves as a Christian hearing truth all the time. You can live in the ideals of Christianity and constantly get caught up in those ideals, but they can become fantasies if they never become real. And that's what Paul is wanting to remind these people here. Because nowhere is the deception of Christianity shattered than when you start talking about money. You know why? Because money is so objective. You can talk about I have faith, and it's a subjective issue because nobody really knows how much faith. We can talk about Christian concepts all day, and it can sound good, but it's hard to measure how much those Christian concepts are really truly in your heart, though they may be in your mind. But you know, when you talk about money, we get real objective. That's why we don't like anybody knowing what we do with our money. Because it is a witness, a very objective witness about who we really are and about how much of the grace has come not only to us, but through us. You know, that was made <laughs> um, real to me a number of years ago when a group of us pastors were sitting and we were debating the issue of the tithe. Some were saying it was for today and some weren't. And I was over there kind of leading the charge that the tithe is not in the New Testament, that we're not under law, but we're under grace and those kind of things. And feeling pretty proud of myself in making a pretty solid case for my position. But in the midst of that, one of the guys on my side says this. He says, but is our argument for grace so that we can give less than 10% or more? Are we arguing so that we can exceed the law? And the minute he said that, you could just look at the faces, including my own. 
and we discovered that what was inside was not acts of beauty. But they were acts of ugliness. That we were covering with a glaze of theology that was ideal but had no reality to it. That's what we're talking about here. See, if you open your checkbook, you kind of look through it, it's going to tell you what's real. And I'm not saying that to heap a lot of guilt just because we have a lot of things in this country. But I think I am saying that when we look through that checkbook, we ought to see some acts of beauty within it. You know, the IRS has a way of spoiling a good time, don't they? I mean, here we are, we've had a month of purchasing and parties and all kinds of things through the month of December. And what do they do about January 2 in your mailbox? They send you this tax instruction form and ruin your good time. They sober you up, don't they? And eventually, before April 15th, all of us are going to have to sit down and go through all our spending over this last year. You know, I have a worthy application since you've got to do it anyway. Okay? Sometimes we give applications and you don't make time for them. But here's an application you can just include because you're going to do this anyway. Why not this time, as you go through that laborious process, as you filter through all those checks and arrange them and what you've done, what you haven't done, why don't you take a spiritual evaluation? A real spiritual evaluation. Ask yourself, not because I'm commanding you to do it or because we're trying to put any guilt here this morning. This is just for you. This is just for you and your God who lives in you. Take a look at all those things and just say, what does this say about me? Really? Oh, I know what I believe, but what does this say about me? Really? Objectively? Did you get a raise last year? Did God get a raise last year? That's reality. See, that's a hard question, but it's a hard issue. As you go through those checks month by month, as you look at what you spent, in those checks, are there some checks that are acts of beauty? Gracious generosity? The grace of God made real? See, do that not because you have to. Do that because it's healthy. Now, the last verse draws us close to Christ. You see, because here in this last verse, verse 9, the Apostle brings out why we're to do this because when Jesus came Jesus came to give us a new philosophy of life radically different and that's why he says in verse 9 for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Clearly he's addressing here the incarnation of Christ that we've just celebrated in December. 
The incarnation of a, of a life that graciously let go of so much so to experience something for our behalf. The word poverty, by the way, here in verse 9 is the same word in verse 2. It says Jesus became a beggar. I mean, imagine Jesus Christ the moment before His conception in the throne room of God with all the riches of the universe, with the angels, as Isaiah tells us, shouting back to Him, holy, 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 like we sung in the hymn. Telling Him how great He was, how wonderful He was, and filling that throne room with adoration. And in the next moment, he was in this smelly stall with lowing cattle. What a come down. What impoverishment. And throughout his life he had nothing. And when he hung on the cross, even the clothes on his back were stripped away so that he hung naked and exposed to the whole world in his crucifixion. And yet, are you richer for that? Absolutely. Covered over in forgiveness. Covered over in protection. Given a hope and a future. Given the thought that there's going to be rewards for what you have done. But see, we look at that and we think of the cross and Christianity and all that is something for me. But the minute you come to the conclusion it's for you only and put a period of there, you're in Baca. The place of dryness. Because that's not the way of life. Jesus' way of life was for you to take that grace and give it away. And thereby experience the abundant life. You know, Paul points here to these Corinthians this illustration of Jesus Christ because they had shared in the grace of Christ. They knew Jesus Christ, but they had not shared their abundance to others and that had left them in a stunted condition. Needing some experience to jack them up when the real experience is giving your life away. Being generous. Making the grace of God real. And it's especially true and sobering, just like that instruction form from the IRS, when it comes to the subject of money. See, for God to bless us, even materially, and then for us not in turn to give to others, is to become a Corinthian, not a Christian. And that's what he wanted them to know. See, when you, when you learn how to give, you think it's for others' benefit. But it's, and it is. But in time, it's for your benefit because you become like Christ. You become a gracious person. Don't, don't, don't you just love to hear that word? Gracious? When somebody looks at another person, that's a gracious gentleman. Sounds so good, doesn't it? It's beautiful. When you hoard, though, whether you know it or not, and see, that's where you get deceived. That's where the Corinthians were deceived because they couldn't see it. They thought they were spiritual. But when you hoard, you become ugly to others. Once a wealthy but crotchety old man sought out a pastor for counsel. He had everything in life, but he was at the end of his life and he was mean and he was miserable. So despondent had he become that he did something he never thought he would do. He sought out a simple 
but satisfied godly man and ask him what was wrong. And this pastor thought for a moment and was not real sure what to say, but suddenly he was inspired with an idea and he walked the old gentleman over to a window and he said, look out and what do you see? And he looked outside and he said, well, I see a couple of children playing and I see a woman watching them and some cars going by with some people in them. He said, well, now come with me. And he brought him over and he said, look in this mirror. What do you see? So the old man looked in the mirror and seemed quite obvious. He kind of almost felt embarrassed. He said, well, I see myself. Then the pastor said to him, he said, isn't it interesting, when you looked out the window, you were looking into a piece of glass. And when you looked in the mirror, you were looking in a piece of glass. The only difference was that the mirror was tinted with just a little bit of silver. And you know, no sooner is that silver added that you can no longer see others. You can only see yourself. When we think life is for us, then we lose our lives. When we think our life is for others, then we will enrich our lives beyond our imagination and the grace of God will be made real. Let me close with an appropriate scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'll just simply read it and then we'll be dismissed. Perhaps in reading this passage at this point, this passage will become all the more real because it does sum up succinctly the decade of the 90s and the calling of the 90s for the church of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Why? Because in doing so, they store up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. He's not just talking about eternity. He's talking about becoming a beautiful person now. Setting a course where you change into a gracious person. They store up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.